0: chapter 11 part 2 of partial portraits by henry james this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by rita butros chapter 11 part 2 the art of fiction the novel and the romance the novel of incident and that of character These clumsy separations appear to me to have been made by critics and readers for their own convenience, and to help them out of some of their occasional queer predicaments, but to have little reality or interest for the producer, from whose point of view it is of course that we are attempting to consider the art of fiction." the case is the same with another shadowy category which mr besant apparently is disposed to set up that of the modern english novel unless indeed it be that in this matter he has fallen into an accidental confusion of standpoints it is not quite clear whether he intends the remarks in which he alludes to it to be didactic or historical it is as difficult to suppose a person intending to write a modern english as to suppose him writing an ancient english novel that is a label which begs the question one writes the novel one paints the picture of one's language and of one's time and calling it modern english will not alas make the difficult task any easier no more, unfortunately, will calling this or that work of one's fellow artist a romance, unless it be, of course, simply for the pleasantness of the thing, as, for instance, when Hawthorne gave this heading to his story of Blithedale. The French, who have brought the theory of fiction to remarkable completeness, have but one name for the novel, and have not attempted smaller things in it that i can see for that i can think of no obligation to which the romancer would not be held equally with the novelist the standard of execution is equally high for each of course it is of execution that we are talking that being the only point of a novel that is open to contention this is perhaps too often lost sight of only to produce interminable confusions and cross-purposes. We must grant the artist his subject, his idea, his donné. Our criticism is applied only to what he makes of it. Naturally I do not mean that we are bound to like it, or find it interesting. In case we do not, our course is perfectly simple, to let it alone. WE MAY BELIEVE THAT OF A CERTAIN IDEA EVEN THE MOST SINCERE NOVELIST CAN MAKE NOTHING AT ALL, AND THE EVENT MAY PERFECTLY JUSTIFY OUR BELIEF. BUT THE FAILURE WILL HAVE BEEN A FAILURE TO EXECUTE, AND IT IS IN THE EXECUTION THAT THE FATAL WEAKNESS IS RECORDED. IF WE PRETEND TO RESPECT THE ARTIST AT ALL we must allow him his freedom of choice in the face, in particular cases, of innumerable presumptions that the choice will not fructify. Art derives a considerable part of its beneficial exercise from flying in the face of presumptions, and some of the most interesting experiments of which it is capable are hidden in the bosom of common things. Gustave Flaubert has written a story about the devotion of a servant girl to a parrot, and the production, highly finished as it is, cannot on the whole be called a success. We are perfectly free to find it flat, but I think it might have been interesting, and I, for my part, am extremely glad he should have written it. It is a contribution to our knowledge of what can be done or what cannot. Ivan Turgeniev has written a tale about a deaf and dumb serf and a lapdog, and the thing is touching, loving, a little masterpiece. He struck the note of life where Gustave Flaubert missed it. He flew in the face of a presumption and achieved a victory nothing of course will ever take the place of the good old fashion of liking a work of art or not liking it the most improved criticism will not abolish that primitive that ultimate test i mention this to guard myself from the accusation of intimating that the idea the subject of a novel or a picture does not matter it matters to my sense in the highest degree and if i might put up a prayer it would be that artists should select none but the richest some as i have already hastened to admit are much more remunerative than others and it would be a world happily arranged in which persons intending to treat them should be exempt from confusions and mistakes This fortunate condition will arrive only, I fear, on the same day that critics become purged from error. Meanwhile, I repeat, we do not judge the artist with fairness unless we say to him, Oh, I grant you your starting point, because if I did not, I should seem to prescribe to you, and heaven forbid I should take that responsibility.' if i pretend to tell you what you must not take you will call upon me to tell you then what you must take in which case i shall be prettily caught moreover it is isn't till i have accepted your data that i can begin to measure you i have the standard the pitch i have no right to tamper with your flute and then criticize your music Of course, I may not care for your idea at all. I may think it silly, or stale, or unclean, in which case I wash my hands of you altogether. I may content myself with believing that you will not have succeeded in being interesting. But I shall, of course, not attempt to demonstrate it, and you will be as indifferent to me as I am to you. I needn't remind you that there are all sorts of tastes, who can know it better some people for excellent reasons don't like to read about carpenters others for reasons even better don't like to read about courtesans many object to americans others i believe they are mainly editors and publishers won't look at italians some readers don't like quiet subjects others don't like bustling ones some enjoy a complete illusion others the consciousness of large concessions they choose their novels accordingly and if they don't care about your idea they won't a fortiori care about your treatment so that it comes back very quickly as i have said to the liking in spite of monsieur Zola, who reasons less powerfully than he represents, and who will not reconcile himself to this absoluteness of taste, thinking that there are certain things that people ought to like, and that they can be made to like. I am quite at a loss to imagine anything, at any rate, in this matter of fiction, that people ought to like or to dislike." selection will be sure to take care of itself for it has a constant motive behind it that motive is simply experience as people feel life so they will feel the art that is most closely related to it this closeness of relation is what we should never forget in talking of the effort of the novel many people speak of it as a factitious artificial form a product of ingenuity the business of which is to alter and arrange the things that surround us to translate them into conventional traditional moulds this however is a view of the matter which carries us but a very short way condemns the art to an eternal repetition of a few familiar cliches cuts short its development and leads us straight up to a dead wall catching the very note and trick the strange irregular rhythm of life that is the attempt whose strenuous force keeps fiction upon her feet in proportion as in what she offers us we see life without rearrangement do we feel that we are touching the truth in proportion as we see it with rearrangement do we feel that we are being put off with a substitute a compromise and convention it is not uncommon to hear an extraordinary assurance of remark in regard to this matter of rearranging which is often spoken of as if it were the last word of art Mr. Besant seems to me in danger of falling into the great error with his rather unguarded talk about selection. Art is essentially selection, but it is a selection whose main care is to be typical, to be inclusive. For many people art means rose-coloured window-panes, and selection means picking a bouquet for Mrs. Grundy. They will tell you glibly that artistic considerations have nothing to do with the disagreeable, with the ugly. They will rattle off shallow commonplaces about the province of art and the limits of art till you are moved to some wonder in return as to the province and the limits of ignorance. It appears to me that no one can ever have made a seriously artistic attempt without becoming conscious of an immense increase, a kind of revelation of freedom. One perceives in that case, by the light of a heavenly ray, that the province of art is all life, all feeling, all observation, all vision as mr besant so justly intimates it is all experience that is a sufficient answer to those who maintain that it must not touch the sad things of life who stick into its divine unconscious bosom little prohibitory inscriptions on the end of sticks such as we see in public gardens it is forbidden to walk on the grass it is forbidden to touch the flowers It is not allowed to introduce dogs, or to remain after dark. It is requested to keep to the right. The young aspirant in the line of fiction, whom we continue to imagine, will do nothing without taste, for in that case his freedom would be of little use to him. But the first advantage of his taste will be to reveal to him the absurdity of the little sticks and tickets." if he have taste i must add of course he will have ingenuity and my disrespectful reference to that quality just now was not meant to imply that it is useless in fiction but it is only a secondary aid the first is a capacity for receiving straight impressions mr besant has some remarks on the question of the story which i shall not attempt to criticise though they seem to me to contain a singular ambiguity because i do not think i understand them i cannot see what is meant by talking as if there were a part of a novel which is the story and part of it which for mystical reasons is not unless indeed the distinction be made in a sense in which it is difficult to suppose that any one should attempt to convey anything THE STORY, IF IT REPRESENTS ANYTHING, REPRESENTS THE SUBJECT, THE IDEA, THE donné OF THE NOVEL. AND THERE IS SURELY NO SCHOOL, MR. Besant SPEAKS OF A SCHOOL, WHICH URGES THAT A NOVEL SHOULD BE ALL TREATMENT AND NO SUBJECT. THERE MUST ASSUREDLY BE SOMETHING TO TREAT. EVERY SCHOOL IS INTIMATELY CONSCIOUS OF THAT. This sense of the story being the idea, the starting point of the novel, is the only one that I see in which it can be spoken of as something different from its organic whole, and since, in proportion as the work is successful, the idea permeates and penetrates it, informs and animates it, so that every word and every punctuation point contribute directly to the expression. In that proportion do we lose our sense of the story being a blade, which may be drawn more or less out of its sheath. The story and the novel, the idea and the form, are the needle and thread, and I never heard of a guild of tailors who recommended the use of the thread without the needle, or the needle without the thread. Mr. Besant is not the only critic who may be observed to have spoken as if there were certain things in life which constitute stories, and certain others which do not. I find the same odd implication in an entertaining article in the Pall Mall Gazette, devoted, as it happens, to Mr. Besant's lecture, The story is the thing, says this graceful writer, as if with a tone of opposition to some other idea. I should think it was, as every painter who, as the time for sending in his picture looms in the distance, finds himself still in quest of a subject, as every belated artist, not fixed upon his theme, will heartily agree. There are some subjects which speak to us, and others which do not but he would be a clever man who should undertake to give a rule an index expurgatorius by which the story and the no story should be known apart it is impossible to me at least to imagine any such rule which shall not be altogether arbitrary the writer in the pall mall opposes the delightful so i suppose novel of margot la Balafre to certain tales in which bostonian nymphs appear to have rejected english dukes for psychological reasons i am not acquainted with the romance just designated and can scarcely forgive the pall mall critic for not mentioning the name of the author but the title appears to refer to a lady who may have received a scar in some heroic adventure. I am inconsolable at not being acquainted with this episode, but am utterly at a loss to see why it is a story when the rejection or acceptance of a duke is not, and why a reason, psychological or other, is not a subject when a cicatrix is." They are all particles of the multitudinous life with which the novel deals, and surely no dogma which pretends to make it lawful to touch the one and unlawful to touch the other will stand for a moment on its feet. It is the special picture that must stand or fall, according as it seemed to possess truth or to lack it. Mr. Bassant does not, to my sense, light up the subject by intimating that a story must, under penalty of not being a story, consist of adventures. Why, of adventures more than of green spectacles? He mentions a category of impossible things, and among them he places fiction without adventure why without adventure more than without matrimony or celibacy or parturition or cholera or hydropathy or jansenism this seems to me to bring the novel back to the hapless little role of being an artificial ingenious thing bring it down from its large free character of an immense and exquisite correspondence with life and what is adventure when it comes to that and by what sign is the listening pupil to recognize it it is an adventure an immense one for me to write this little article and for a bostonian nymph to reject an english duke is an adventure only less stirring i should say than for an english duke to be rejected by a bostonian nymph i see dramas within dramas in that and innumerable points of view a psychological reason is to my imagination an object adorably pictorial to catch the tint of its complexion i feel as if that idea might inspire one to titianesque efforts there are few things more exciting to me in short than a psychological reason and yet i protest the novel seems to me the most magnificent form of art i have just been reading at the same time the delightful story of treasure island by mr robert louis stevenson and in a manner less consecutive the last tale from m edmond de Goncourt, which is entitled chérie one of these works treats of murders mysteries islands of dreadful renown hair-breadth escapes miraculous coincidences and buried doubloons the other treats of a little French girl who lived in a fine house in Paris and died of wounded sensibility because no one would marry her. I call Treasure Island delightful because it appears to me to have succeeded wonderfully in what it attempts, and I venture to bestow no epithet upon Cherie, which strikes me as having failed deplorably in what it attempts, that is in tracing the development of the moral consciousness of a child but one of these productions strikes me as exactly as much of a novel as the other and as having a story quite as much the moral consciousness of a child is as much a part of life as the islands of the spanish main and the one sort of geography seems to me to have those surprises of which mr besant speaks quite as much as the other for myself since it comes back in the last resort as i say to the preference of the individual the picture of the child's experience has the advantage that i can at successive steps an immense luxury near to the sensual pleasure of which mr besant's critic in the pall mall speaks say yes or no as it may be to what the artist puts before me i have been a child in fact but i have been on a quest for a buried treasure only in supposition And it is a simple accident that, with Monsieur de Jancourt, I should have, for the most part, to say no. With George Eliot, when she painted that country with a far other intelligence, I always said yes. The most interesting part of Mister Besant's lecture is, unfortunately, the briefest passage: his very cursory allusion to the conscious moral purpose of the novel. Here again, it is not very clear whether he be recording a fact, or laying down a principle. It is a great pity that in the latter case he should not have developed his idea. This branch of the subject is of immense importance, and Mr. Besant's few words point to considerations of the widest reach, not to be lightly disposed of. He will have treated the art of fiction, but superficially, who is not prepared to go every inch of the way that these considerations will carry him. It is for this reason that at the beginning of these remarks I was careful to notify the reader that my reflections on so large a theme have no pretension to be exhaustive like mr besant i have left the question of the morality of the novel till the last and at the last i find i have used up my space it is a question surrounded with difficulties as witness the very first that meets us in the form of a definite question on the threshold vagueness in such a discussion is fatal and what is the meaning of your morality and your conscious moral purpose will you not define your terms and explain how a novel being a picture a picture can be either moral or immoral you wish to paint a moral picture or carve a moral statue will you not tell us how you would set about it we are discussing the art of fiction questions of art are questions in the widest sense of execution questions of morality are quite another affair and will you not let us see how it is that you find it so easy to mix them up these things are so clear to mr besant that he has deduced from them a law which he sees embodied in english fiction and which is a truly admirable thing and a great cause for congratulation it is a great cause for congratulation indeed when such thorny problems become as smooth as silk." I may add that in so far as Mr. Besant perceives that in point of fact English fiction has addressed itself preponderantly to these delicate questions, he will appear to many people to have made a vain discovery they will have been positively struck on the contrary with the moral timidity of the usual english novelist with his or with her aversion to face the difficulties with which on every side the treatment of reality bristles he is apt to be extremely shy whereas the picture that mr besant draws is a picture of boldness and the sign of his work for the most part is a cautious silence on certain subjects in the english novel by which of course i mean the american as well more than in any other there is a traditional difference between that which people know and that which they agree to admit that they know that which they see and that which they speak of that which they feel to be a part of life and that which they allow to enter into literature. There is the great difference, in short, between what they talk of in conversation and what they talk of in print. The essence of moral energy is to survey the whole field, and I should directly reverse Mr. Besson's remark, and say not that the English novel has a purpose, but that it has a diffidence." To what degree a purpose in a work of art is a source of corruption, I shall not attempt to inquire. The one that seems to me least dangerous is the purpose of making a perfect work. As for our novel, I may say lastly on this score that as we find it in England today it strikes me as addressed in a large degree to young people, and that this in itself constitutes a presumption that it will be rather shy. There are certain things which it is generally agreed not to discuss, not even to mention, before young people. That is very well, but the absence of discussion is not a symptom of the moral passion." The purpose of the English novel, a truly admirable thing, and a great cause for congratulation, strikes me, therefore, as rather negative. There is one point at which the moral sense and the artistic sense lie very near together. That is, in the light of the very obvious truth that the deepest quality of a work of art will always be the quality of the mind of the producer in proportion as that intelligence is fine will the novel the picture the statue partake of the substance of beauty and truth to be constituted of such elements is to my vision to have purpose enough no good novel will ever proceed from a superficial mind that seems to me an axiom which for the artist in fiction will cover all needful moral ground If the youthful aspirant take it to heart, it will illuminate for him many of the mysteries of purpose. There are many other useful things that might be said to him. But I have come to the end of my article, and can only touch them as I pass. The critic in the Pall Mall Gazette, whom I have already quoted, draws attention to the danger, in speaking of the art of fiction, of generalizing. The danger that he has in mind is rather, I imagine, that of particularizing, for there are some comprehensive remarks which, in addition to those embodied in Mr. Besant's suggestive lecture, might without fear of misleading him be addressed to the ingenuous student.' i should remind him first of the magnificence of the form that is open to him which offers to sight so few restrictions and such innumerable opportunities the other arts in comparison appear confined and hampered the various conditions under which they are exercised are so rigid and definite but the only condition that i can think of attaching to the composition of the novel is as i have already said that it be sincere this freedom is a splendid privilege and the first lesson of the young novelist is to learn to be worthy of it enjoy it as it deserves i should say to him take possession of it explore it to its utmost extent publish it rejoice in it all life belongs to you and do not listen either to those who would shut you up into corners of it and tell you that it is only here and there that art inhabits or to those who would persuade you that this heavenly messenger wings her way outside of life altogether breathing a superfine air and turning away her head from the truth of things there is no impression of life no manner of seeing it and feeling it to which the plan of the novelist may not offer a place you have only to remember that talents so dissimilar as those of alexander dumas and jane austen charles dickens and gustave flaubert have worked in this field with equal glory do not think too much about optimism and pessimism try and catch the colour of life itself in france today, we see a prodigious effort that of emile zola to whose solid and serious work no explorer of the capacity of the novel can allude without respect we see an extraordinary effort vitiated by a spirit of pessimism on a narrow basis m zola is magnificent but he strikes an english reader as ignorant he has an air of working in the dark if he had as much light as energy his results would be of the highest value as for the aberrations of a shallow optimism the ground of english fiction especially is strewn with their brittle particles as with broken glass If you must indulge in conclusions, let them have the taste of a wide knowledge. Remember that your first duty is to be as complete as possible, to make as perfect a work. Be generous and delicate, and pursue the prize. Eighteen eighty four. End of chapter eleven, part two, The Art of Fiction. End of partial portraits by Henry James.